Please turn with me to Acts chapter 15, as we will continue our study in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, we'll be looking at the first 21 verses this morning of this very important section in the book of Acts. Many people would call it the kind of the turning point of the book, kind of a a shift in thinking or even a, a writing, kind of the making it true of the thinking of the church. And so before we get to that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. We are quick to just simply glance over it, or we are quick to pick out little things that we like, or even bring our own thoughts to the word and find things that agree with our thoughts. All of these are sinful, and so Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come to your word that you would help us to find the truth therein, that that truth would convict us of our sin, that it would lead us closer to you, that it would teach us how we ought to act, that it would show us the ministry that we have to this community and to the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as I was reading through this text, it made me think of this common idea of good guys and bad guys and but a little different than normal it made me think of um, when I was a kid I watched professional wrestling a lot of you guys probably did that and I even still get into it from time to time Um, it's changed quite a bit from when I was young kind of now everyone looks the same they all have long like oily hair and they all look the same to me now (laughs) maybe they did then too but when I was a kid they definitely did not look the same they were like had these really wild costumes and personalities and there was very easy to tell you could turn it on and see it that guy's a bad guy that guy's a good guy of course wrestling doesn't use those terms they use the term heel and face face being good guy heel being bad guy and the lines again are more blurred today but back then you really knew who to root for you know, I had some friends that would root for the bad guys, and I didn't understand them. You always rooted for the good guys, right? They, they, and the good guys never wrestled the bad guy, or the good guys. They always wrestled the bad guys, and there was this constant, eternal struggle between good and evil. But every once in a while, they would wrestle each other. The good guy would wrestle the good guy. And it was heart-wrenching, always. Because they weren't supposed to be fighting each other. They were supposed to be fighting the forces of evil together. But sometimes it would happen when, like, for instance, when Hulk Hogan fought the Ultimate Warrior, a small part of me died that day. WrestleMania six. Getting seeing Hogan getting pinned down, a portion of my childhood went away. I grew up a little bit that day. Why? Because good guys aren't supposed to fight each other. They're not. They're, they're not supposed to lose. When two good guys fight each other, one of them one of them has to lose, and it wasn't right. In our passage today, we're going to have two good guys squaring off, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, squaring off in the ring of gospel orthodoxy. Unfortunately, Peter Peter has a moment of slipping. You could say that he turned heel for a small time of his life, and he needed an adjustment, and it was the Apostle Paul who was going to be there to do it. So today we're going to be looking 
at what is probably the first Presbytery meeting. Me as a Presbyterian, of course I'm going to say that. At least we're going to call it that today. It was definitely a meeting of all the apostles and the elders in the church getting together to make a decision that would affect all of the churches. Very important decision. It wasn't a small issue. It was the nature of the gospel itself. Very important. So what I want us to see is that it's very easy for us even in our zeal for the true gospel of Jesus Christ to turn heel, as it were, and easily slip into preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. If the Apostle Peter can do it, then any one of us can easily do that. We have to be on guard not only for ourselves, but for each other. And so as we look at the text, I want to consider it in three points. First, the confrontation, then the deliberation, and then the declaration. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts 15, 1 through 21. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order in, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their neck of, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Then all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them to the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from all and from that which has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath 
in the synagogues. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So in the intro, I spoke of a confrontation between Peter and Paul. We didn't see that directly spelled out in our text today, but it's there. Verses 1 and 2. But some of the men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, they were appointed to go to Jerusalem. And so what's going on in these verses is spelled out in much more detail in the book of Galatians chapter 2. And so if you'll turn, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll look at that. It makes sense for that story, this story that we find in Acts 15, to be detailed in Galatians 2, right? Because where did Paul and Barnabas just finish coming from with their first journey? To the cities in Galatia which were very near to this whole conflict. And they would go back there very soon. And so this was an an event that they would have been very familiar with. The true gospel is at stake. It's at stake in Galatia as well. This is very important for them to hear. So in Galatians chapter 2, everyone turn there except me, verses 11 through 14, we see this kind of play itself out. But when Cephas, or this is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Good question. In the first part of Galatians 2, we read about Paul first meeting the apostles and meeting them in Jerusalem. Remember, Paul was converted from a life of persecuting Christians, and now he's one of their leaders. And so that first part of Galatians 2, we have this, and jumps right into this conflict with Peter, who was kind of like the head apostle at the time. We read this about this rift. And note why it occurs, because the gospel is at stake. Not It's not a personal issue between Peter and Paul, though you might think something like that would arise. It never does. Peter accepts Paul for who he is. But Peter, for some reason, these men from James is is what they're called. These just men that came to the city of Antioch to check out the church. For some reason, when they came, Peter, who had been eating with the Gentiles, and remember, normally Jews don't do that. They don't even eat in the same room with the Gentile or the same building, much less. But Peter had been eating with them because the gospel tears down those walls. For some reason, he stopped doing that. He began acting as if the gospel was only for the Jews. Again, And put it a different way, as if you had to be a Jew in order to be saved. Or part of being saved is becoming a Jew. When Peter does this, the leader, think about what's going to happen. Everyone's going to see that occurring and others are going to be led astray. He took others with him. Even Barnabas was said to have 
kind of been led astray through this. Notice it says in Galatians 2, it says they acted hypocritically along with him. They were playing a part. Look at that word last week in Sunday school, the word hypocrite. It's an actor. It's playing a part, putting on a mask. They were not behaving like Christians. They were acting like something else. So Paul called him out, Peter, called him out in front of everyone, which was necessary because this was a sin that was happening in front of everybody. How can you say one thing and yet do another is essentially what he said. And this is the problem that we have in front of us in the text in Acts 15 today. This problem comes all the way back to Jerusalem and there where the church was birthed, they have to deal with this problem all the apostles and the elders come together to do this. And that brings me to the first point, the confrontation. And so again, verse 1, it says, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what the message of these people that had come to Antioch, that's what they were saying. You could easily read it like this. Unless you become a Jew like me, you cannot be saved. Circumcision and Judaism were very closely linked. I think we understand that. It was their identity. Just like baptism is the sign of a new covenant. It's very closely linked with the Christian faith, is it not? Jesus' commission to the church was to do what? Make disciples and baptize them. Repent and be baptized was Peter's message at Pentecost. Throughout the rest of the book... Baptism is going to take a center stage as the thing that new converts do after belief. Not as a means of salvation. I think we've covered that thoroughly. But as a sign of entrance into this covenant community. Identifying with this group who call themselves Christians. New believers were baptized. Their families were baptized just as the Jews and their families were circumcised under the old covenant. So this is an identity with a group. And these people are saying you have to be circumcised in order to look like us, be like us. You have to do these things just like us. And so we read in verse 2 that there was no small dissension, no small debate with them. Paul and Barnabas, some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem, basically appointed as uh, delegates from the church in Antioch to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And as they went, they began sharing the news of what was going on. Again, no small debate. We kind of get the picture that this may have been several intense discussions, so much so that it needed to be taken to the next level. We've been talking about that with in Sunday school, how we deal with conflict. Well, they weren't able to reason this out personally, so they had to go up to the next level, which was to bring in the whole church with it. They needed to bring the whole church together to consider it, all the elders, all the leaders in Jerusalem, and notice what goes on when they get to Jerusalem. They're welcomed. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So this wasn't like a, this isn't a personal issue. We don't have enemies, we don't have factions dealing here. This is a, this is an important thing. Even though there's a disagreement, they were welcome. And I think this is an important concept for us here. Disagreements will happen between people who love one another and who can still then love one another afterward. Even big disagreements, 
the nature of the gospel. This is, this is a very big issue here. This meeting is a meeting of Christians, not Christians and their enemies meeting together. Even though we read of the, the party of the Pharisees in verse 5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these were believers as well. All right, so we don't we don't want to get the picture of enemies and then Christians, good guys, bad guys. That's not what's happening here. As we grow and minister together, even here at Redeemer, there may be times when you hear something that is said and you think, well, that doesn't sound right. It's not the way that I understand that. It's usually me that's up here saying things, and you may think, well, I don't agree with that. Please know. I implore you to seek me out. Let's talk about it. I can speak for Andy even though he's not here. He would say the exact same thing. If Andy says it, he wants you to do that. Come to him if you disagree with what's going on. Anytime you feel that what is taught is not biblical, it's your right, nay, it's your responsibility to come and let it be known to the elders, even if it's the elders that are speaking it. We see this right here outlined for us in Acts 15. We're going to see it even again throughout the book. And you may think, oh, Mike, you're silly. You don't say crazy things. Just stick around. If Peter can go off course, any one of us can. And so we have to be on guard. That's why when you're listening to a sermon, when you're in Sunday school, even when you hear sad conversations, you're always actively listening not looking for something to be wrong. There's a difference. If you look for something to be wrong, guess what? You'll always find it. And so that's not what we're doing here, but we're always seeking truth. And when something that's not true is said, we need to be ready. That brings me to the second point, the deliberation. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so what's going on? After much debate, again, a good thing. The word debate is not a bad word. It's a good word. It's a healthy thing. Very healthy. Disagreements are good when people act right. It helps us to learn. Healthy, edifying discussion. Everyone learns something, even if some people are wrong. It's okay. When the debate centers on the issue of hand, at hand, everyone is built up every single time. When the debate centers on people and, with, and how bad they are, then guess what? Everyone is brought down. Everyone is. This debate centered on the main focus, the nature of the gospel. And notice who ends up bringing up the main point, the Apostle Peter. Something has happened between the time that we saw him in Galatians 2 and what's going on here now. Peter took his correction from Paul and it changed him. That should teach us something. If the Apostle Peter can be corrected and learn, then definitely we should be able to be that way as well. What do we call receiving a right rebuke and then changing ourselves, changing our hearts as a result of that? That is the very essence of repentance. Peter's repentance here 
is not only an internal thing. He doesn't simply internalize this truth and then just kind of sit there quietly. Well, I don't want to cause any more stirs. So I'm just going to kind of sit here. No. He makes his repentance, his change, a public matter. And this profession also admit, admit that he was doing what? He was admitting before all of these people that he had been wrong. And what does he say? He says, God made a choice that I, Peter, should go out and preach to the Gentiles, that they should hear the gospel by my voice. And we have that very account, do we not? We looked in Acts 10 and 11 where Peter did that very thing, that he went out and preached to the Gentiles. Not only was it God's choice that Peter be their preacher, but it was also God's choice that the Gentiles hear and believe and that the Holy Spirit come upon them just as he did the Jews. And there were not Jew Christians and Gentile Christians. There were just Christians, just believers. Those who believed were as one. Peter says there was no distinction. All of them, Jew and Gentile, had hearts that were wicked and needed cleanse. And all of them, Jew and Gentile, had their hearts cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. The thing that bound them together was a common Savior, one people whom Jesus died to save. And this is what Peter's rebuke centers around in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is very important, what he says here in verse 10. Why are you putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers or we have been able to bear? What is Peter saying? As a Jew, Peter and his fathers, as Jewish men and women, they were unable to bear the weight of what? The law. What did Jesus do? He came and he bore the full weight of it and freed us, freed them from that. So then why, Peter, what Peter's saying is, since this weight has been freed from us by the perfect Jewish man, Jesus Christ, why then are we taking that weight and putting it right back on other people? Which is essentially what's happening. They too through belief in Christ, are free of that same weight that we have been freed from. This is very important for us because this is something that we constantly get wrong. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. This chapter that is famously about dealing with conflict also gives us this parable that is about dealing with conflict and really about how we get the gospel so wrong. And this I'm going to read a short section here, so bear with me, but it's, I think it's important for us to get the grasp because this is the same thing that Peter and the, the church are dealing with here in Acts 15. Look at verses 21 and following. And notice who's asking the question and who's getting taught here. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Now we don't deal in talents today. A talent is approximately twenty years wages. If you take the average wage of about forty grand, this is about eight billion dollars in today's money. Eight billion dollars. Who owed him eight billion dollars or ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children that all he had and payment is to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Every bit of it. Eight billion dollars. Forgave it. But when that same servant went out, the one who was just forgiven, mind you, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is about a day's wages, and today's money would be about twenty-five grand. If you're wondering how twenty-five grand seems like a lot of money to me, if you're wondering how that relates to eight billion dollars, it's about two millionth of a percent. It's a very small amount. I did all this math, by the way. It's kind of fun. Who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a very small amount of money compared to ten thousand talents, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe." So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, this had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers that he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's put this parable in the context of the Jerusalem council, which is where we're at. What Peter is saying is this. We, as Jewish people, have been forgiven 10,000 talents. The law is something that we could never pay back. Just read the Old Testament. The Jewish people were really bad at following the law. Even something as simple as circumcision represents something that we could never account for. It represents our sin that needs to be removed. Now that we are forgiven, Peter's saying, we are demanding that they, the Gentiles, pay us. And we are demanding what amounts to two millionth of a percent of the amount that we've been forgiven. Put it this way. Think about it. Eight billion dollars we've been forgiven, and now we're running out to find the guy who owes us twenty-five grand that he can pay us. It's ludicrous, right? Think of the ways that we do this, brothers and sisters. We've been set free from any and every kind of bondage in Jesus Christ. There are no requirements for salvation. Jesus paid them all. He does, not pay, he does not require anything of us. The work even that it took for me to say, I believe. He did that work as well. Jesus did it all and he paid it all that we might have everything. 
We are just recipients of the Father's mercy and grace in our lives. So then, why do we make up these silly conditions for others when it comes to our faith? And I've seen many. I've heard a few. Just think, just work through this here. I've heard these exact things said or something close to them. Well, now that you're a member here, you really should consider homeschooling your kids. I'm not talking about our church in particular. It's God's true blessing for the family. You'll have trouble fitting in around here if you don't. That was actually said to our family and in, our, in another church. Now that you're a Christian, you'll need to wear your hair long and always wear a dress with long sleeves. If you don't, you'll be demonstrating that you belong to the world. Our group meets twice a week. This is something I heard in college. And you'll need to be a part of that of a small group as well. We have some that aren't part of those small groups, but they're choosing a mediocre lifestyle. Is homeschooling bad? Absolutely not. It's a great thing. A lot of you guys do that. It's phenomenal. Is dressing conservatively wrong? No, it's a good thing. Are small groups bad? No, they're a great thing for a church. Are these things the gospel? No, absolutely not. They are good things, but they cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Was circumcision a good thing for the Jewish people? Yes, it continued to be a sign of who they were, a sign of the old covenant that linked them to the new. It was who they were as Jewish people. It separated them from the rest of the world. Absolutely, it was a good thing. Was it necessary for salvation? No. Was it necessary for membership into the church? No. What is necessary? Only belief in Jesus Christ. Church, anytime we have some other sneaky requirement for admission into this huddle that we call the church, no matter what it is, we have created a false gospel and therefore a false god, an idol. We've erected this idol and now we're asking other people to bow down to it. Not only that, we're making worship to that idol admission for into our church that we ourselves did not have to pay. We've been forgiven billions. Now we're requiring pennies of other people. When we do this, we stand in the way of Jesus Christ's work. We're attempting to become the Savior, and he will not share that title. He will make every mountain low. He will raise up every valley to bring the plain truth to his people, even those who have not yet believed. He will make that truth available to them. Let us be the ones who pave the way for that message, not be the roadblocks. That brings us to the next part, the declaration. Verse 12 in Acts 15. And all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So with Peter's rebuke, the room falls silent. They listen to Paul and Barnabas tell what the Lord is doing. And then James, this is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, James, who was apparently moderating this meeting at the time, who was kind of leading it and making sure everything was going right. He's now going to speak. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's talking about Peter, this is his Jewish name, I think it's appropriate that he would use that here, 
has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. James is basically saying, Peter said this happened. That just happens to be what they've been saying all along in the Old Testament as well. And he quotes Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. That all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He quotes Amos 9. We read that this morning. What is the nature of this quote? It's basically a prophecy saying that God is not only restoring the remnant of Israel, but that remnant will also include all the nations that he had from people from all the nations whom he has called his own, the Gentile nations. And then he makes a, a judgment that the Gentiles should be allowed into the fellowship and that we should leave them alone in that regard. And then he offers some other instructions there, which we will get more into next week because they're going to craft a letter and send it to the Gentile churches. And it kind of goes through a lot of those things. So we'll spend more time with that next week. The important thing for us to see, the issue of the gospel is at stake. And in the end, they settled it in a very frank but life-giving debate and discussion. They settled it with Scripture. Anyone who stood in opposition to this declaration that's straight from Scripture, would now not only be in opposition to the council and what the council has ruled on that day, but they would also be in opposition to God himself. Because this is straight from Scripture. And we'll see just that as we go through the book of Acts. Some will walk away from this meeting and they'll continue to hold to the idea that circumcision is necessary for salvation. And Paul will rebuke them over and over again, harshly even, get that rebuke primarily in the book of Galatians. For us to stand in opposition to the gospel is to stand opposed to the scriptures and to the one who spoke them, the Savior himself, the very word made flesh, Jesus Christ. It is not our place that we want to find ourselves in, brothers and sisters. So in conclusion, let us daily seek out those places in our hearts where we are harboring a false gospel We are all very capable of it. We all do it. Do we have those things in our hearts that keep us from accepting others? Do we have requirements that God doesn't require? These are good questions that we should ask. Do we as a church here at Redeemer have requirements that Christ himself does not require of the church? If so, let us cast them out so that the believer in Jesus Christ is free to worship, to live as a free person. If you don't have that freedom, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, call upon his name and be saved. That freedom that he offers is yours for the taking. It's like being, it's like being freed up of $8 billion of debt, something that you could never hope to repay. He takes it all away. For the rest of us, let us offer only Jesus Christ as the true gospel so that the world may hear and be saved. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we admit our own idolatry, our own versions of the gospel that are nothing but false. There is one true gospel. Lord, we are thankful that over and over we have in your word examples of time when men and women stood up for the true gospel 
so that we would know today, so that our message might be true, so that people can hear that message and be saved. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this work, that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.